Good morning or good evening, as the case may be. Um, welcome to uh, a United States Studies Center webinar. I'm Simon Jackman, Professor of Political Science here at the US Study Center and the CEO of the center. And um, I begin by acknowledging that the United States Studies Center stands here at the University of Sydney on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people, part of the Eora Nation, and we pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Today, we're joined by um, uh, uh, Phil Rucker and his co-author, Carol Lennig um, um, from Washington, DC. Uh, of course, uh, Phil and Carol are journalists at the Washington Post. Last year, we had the great opportunity to host Phil, not with Carol, but as, uh, in connection with the launch um, of, their, of their previous book, um, uh, a very stable genius, uh, and 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 that was one of our very first uh, events, uh, virtual events, um, as, as Sydney was going into lockdown. Um, I forget exactly what month it was. It might have been May or June, as the centre was pivoting uh, to, to online events in in 2020. And here we are, alas, uh, in the middle of August 21 and in the middle of, a, of another lockdown in Sydney, and this one looking like it might go a little longer than that first one. But um, as, we, as we've told one another many times through, through this, uh, turning adversity into opportunity. And, and the flip side is that it means we're able to use this technology um, to, to stand up an event and, and to have an hour of conversation with, with Phil and Carol all the way from Washington, um, uh, where it is evening for them um, and so we're delighted that they're giving up an hour um, on, a, on a weeknight um, uh, Washington time uh, to be with us tonight. Um, their second book about the Trump presidency um, really focuses on, on the last year of, of the Trump presidency, uh, 2020, which has to go down as one of the most tumultuous years in American history. Um, COVID tested every government on the planet, every political leader on the planet, but in the United States, um, it, the pandemic arrives and in a country where Donald Trump is president. And not only is Donald Trump president, but Trump is eyeing keenly uh, his impending um, campaign for re-election. Um, and it was over the course of that year that the United States lost more than half a million of its citizens um, to COVID as we're all uh, so tragically um, aware. Uh, but Trump himself, uh, those daily um, briefings uh, from the podium uh, that Phil um, <laughs> um, uh, attended and, and, and asked questions at, um, it was Prime Minister John Howard here in Australia that said it seemed that with every one of those, Trump seemed to be signing his political death warrant, um, sort of a remarkable thing for a conservative prime minister in Australia to say about a Republican president. Um, but but. Bill and Carol were eyewitnesses uh, to history, as it were. Um, one of them sitting there uh, in Washington, reporting on the White House in this remarkable period uh, in the face of the greatest public health crisis to confront the United States in a century, in the midst of, of this turbulent sort of policy-making, decision-making environment with dire consequences, not just politically, but of course for, for the United States and, and in turn uh, for the planet and particularly allies like Australia. Uh, so today we're going to dwell on that last year and, and the book that, that Phil and Carol have, have produced um, outlining uh, that last year. 
um, of the Trump presidency and, and to lead us through the bulk of the next hour or now 56 minutes um, is the US Study Center's own Bruce Wolpe. Bruce, um, um, uh, 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 tireless worker on behalf of the US Study Center. We're so pleased to have him uh, affiliated with us from his media work here in Australia to, to renewing and, and sustaining his deep uh, uh, address book uh, back there in Washington DC. Um, uh, serves the centre uh, particularly well. As, as many of you will know, um, Bruce has worked in politics in both Australia and the United States in media uh, here in Australia as well. Um, remarkably well positioned uh, to lead uh, today's conversation with, with Phil and Carol. Uh, uh, and with that, Bruce, um, over to you. Thank you. Thank you. It's a wonderful, Carol, Phil, it's just wonderful to have you here and, and welcome. And we want to welcome you in person when we can. But uh, uh, just thanks to both of you for being available tonight to talk about your superb book. We'll get to it shortly, but anything you're listening and uh, viewing this morning. So uh, please, please do say hello. And, uh, and I say welcome to MSNBC. That's the way I feel we're, we are in your position right now. Phil? Yeah, Bruce, thank you so much. It's a real treat to be with you guys. And uh, and we appreciate you and, and Simon and the whole team at the U.S. Study Center for, you know, taking an interest in this book and this work and, and giving us a chance to talk a little bit more about our reporting on the Trump final year. Okay. Yeah. I would just say I'm delighted to be here. Uh, first time with you both, but um, very excited for the conversation. And, and I liked what Simon said so much about allies because it's one of the enduring problems of the past presidency was the rejection of these important allies that um, we all know the country's safety is built upon. So it's good to be with you in that spirit as well. Thank you so much. Um, we're going to dive deep into the book in a moment, but just given the important news out of Afghanistan and all the events over the past few days, in your first book, you did a lot of reporting on Trump and Afghanistan, his relationship with the generals. It led to the peace deal that actually has framed the events that we're living through and the Afghanis are living through right now. Just any thoughts on, on your reporting from you know, two years ago and what you're seeing today and how it's, um, and what we face and some perspective would be great to hear as we begin. Uh, you know, it, it's really interesting to me what's happening right now because it was actually Donald Trump's promise uh, on the campaign to end the endless wars. And it was the fear of um, the, what, what is unfolding today in with the Taliban's entrenchment across the country. It is um, exactly what was feared by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and his other colleagues, uh, the other chiefs of Army, Navy. And it's why they plotted at the end of 2020 to serially resign because they were fearful that Donald Trump would force an overnight withdrawal of US troops from Afghanistan. Their fear was that the country would collapse on its own weight. Uh, the Taliban would take over all the jeeps and weaponry that were left behind as uh, during the pullout. And Biden's removal uh, withdrawal was much more thought through and less um, overnight. And yet some of the same consequences that those chiefs feared then are now before us. Mm -hmm. Uh, Phil, anything you want to add to that before we? No, I, I just, this seems to have been the inevitable, um, 
you know, turn of history in the United States, regardless of uh, who was going to be president, it, it seemed inevitable that we would be withdrawing from Afghanistan at some point. Um, it clearly has not gone according to how Biden anticipated or, or would have planned for, and I think reveals a lot of weaknesses in, in his administration's planning. Um, but I, I would assume had Trump been reelected and, and withdrawn himself, it would have been just as chaotic, if not more so. Um, they both wanted the same outcome, which was to bring our, our troops home, to stop spending money there, to focus on America. Uh, not on on not on nation building in Afghanistan, and so in that sense, they were very like minded, as Carol pointed out. Thank you. Thank, uh, thanks very much on that. So, turning to the books, um, in anticipation of our discussion today, I went back and looked at a very stable genius, and I I took down these points based on your reporting on Trump that he governs largely to protect himself and promote himself, that he cared more about the show than about the governing and the mechanics of governing, the substance of governing. His antipathy to the military, there is uh, an explosive uh, scene in your first book about his meeting with the chiefs in the Situation Room, or, or it was there at the Pentagon, but he calls them dopes and losers. I mean, it was just a calamitous uh, session. Um, his rages and that no one is able to stop the rages, they come as he is exercising the power of the presidency, uh, that the mood in the White House verged on the manic so often day by day. And that uh, by the end of the third year of his presidency, the enablers were in power. In other words, the guardrails had sort of slipped away and they slipped away further in the fourth year. So, so two questions. Um, how soon did you know after writing A Stable Genius that you want to write another book? And, <laughs> and secondly, um, in writing I Alone Can Fix It, did you find anything different about Trump in, the, in his last year compared to what you saw in the, in the previous years? Um, I'll, I'll take the first question and let Phil um, think and cogitate about the second. Um, you know, we did not want to write a second book. We were exhausted and tired from writing about the first two and a half and three years. And we feel we felt then that we did a pretty good job of, of sticking the landing, you know, reflecting who Trump was, what motivated him, what made him tick and taking people inside those rooms where he was making those chaotic and impulsive decisions, taking them inside the tank, this famous room in the Pentagon where decisions of war and, and history are made and where he dressed down military leaders so horribly that you know adult women who were uh, important officers who'd seen combat were, were hiding back tears. Um, we felt like we had that that story told pretty well. And then as we were began kind of updating the paperback of Stable Genius in the middle and the early part of 2020, it became really clear that 2020 was a totally different animal. And, and as Simon said, you know, one with one of the most like horrific consequences in American history. And it wasn't something we could look away from. We felt like we, we almost had a duty to go back, re-excavate and figure out what happened. And I, Bruce, to answer your second question there about what we learned that was different about Trump. I mean, what we learned in, in doing this deeper research on his final year was that all the attributes, the characteristics that were evident early on are, were the same characteristics. He's the same person, right? It's the same uh, ignorance and temper and pettiness and cruelty and just no empathy anywhere and the narcissism and the kind of impulsive decision-making that was all evident. And yet in the final year, 
we realized how deadly the consequences could be. Um, he was faced with a crisis that that you know, and his inability to manage it was downright deadly. Six hundred thousand Americans died on his watch. He also threatened the integrity and um, indeed the the durability of America's democracy in a way that he didn't really in those first three years. There were consequences, of course, in the first three years, but by the fourth year, you know, there were there were doubts about whether he and whether his tens of millions of followers would even accept the outcome of a free and fair election. And of course, they did not. Um, he continues to this day to protest that he believes the election was rigged and stolen um, when there has been no evidence furnished uh, to support that claim. And, you know, the, the, the nation is as divided as it's been in certainly in a generation, perhaps since the Civil War um, of, of the 19th century. Uh, in part because of of his leadership and the, and and the lies that he has spread um, in the country, so the consequences were so much more severe that that became evident in the final year. But the man was the same, and all the characteristics we saw even before he took office, when he was running for office as a political candidate in 2015 and 2016, those those all existed all the way through the end. I, I felt uh, going into before COVID, I felt that uh, Trump had a really good chance of being reelected, uh, that even though uh, everyone said the Democrats are going to win and, try and so forth, and given the closeness of the final vote, you know, where it's only, it was 78,000 votes across Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania in 2016, it was 44,000 votes difference in uh, uh, Iowa, uh, Michigan, Arizona, and uh, Georgia, uh, sorry, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Georgia, it was much closer. And so without COVID, he may well have been reelected. And I guess the question was, you have in the book that Trump had repeated warnings that he would, that how he was handling COVID could cost him the election. Bibi Netanyahu even said, you know, you could lose the election because of this. And uh, winning to Trump is everything. So why didn't he take some of those concerns on board and change what he was doing? This is such a good question because, you know, Trump's North Star was staying in power. Everything he did was with the goal of getting reelected. You know, he did, he was surprised to be elected the first time around and then he fell in love with the job or rather he fell in love with the role and, and everything he did was, was about getting reelected. Um, but what's funny is that the thing you described the theme or the, the paradigm you described earlier, Bruce, you know, the enablers taking over the, the guardrails gone after 2019. The the fact that he, Donald Trump, faced no consequences for actions that would normally land, you know, an everyday person like you, me, Phil, Simon in jail, when he faced no, no consequences for those actions, no reverberations even from his own party, you know, for asking a foreign official to investigate an American citizen for, um, the evidence that was copious that he had giddily welcomed um, the involvement of a, a foreign power in the election. Um, all of these things did not have consequences. And the result for him was he was sure he knew best about everything. Before he might have listened to a Rex Tillerson or a Jim Mattis, the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense, but increasingly he knew best always. Um, and so much so that he didn't listen when, for example, Bill Barr came to him in the spring of 2020 
for a private meeting and a sit down and said, you've got to listen to me. I hope you will. But I think you're going to lose this election because of how you're handling COVID. I think people are worried and it looks chaotic. It looks in slightly insane, whatever you're doing from day to day with the message changing all the time. And I think this is going to be the end if you don't make a course correction. And, and but Phil, did he do that because just because he had uh, uh, unlimited belief in his own uh, value, worth, and, and and his judgment? He just would not, that nothing really could shake, once he decided on a course, that nothing could really shake him from the course. That's that's right. Um, you know, he, he followed his gut. He thought he understood politics and certainly communicating to his base better than all the so-called experts. And, you know, there's some reason to believe in that because he followed his gut in 2016 and it worked for him, right? And all the experts said, no way he can win in 2016. And yet he did uh, because he believed in in what he was doing and in his message and in sort of pivoting every hour to, to please his base and it worked. Um, you know, in, in terms of COVID, and, and by the way, it, it wasn't, it, it, the, the number of people pleading with him to change course on COVID was very long. It was a lot of people, um, also Chris Christie, um, you know, people who really were trying to get him into the right headspace. And he just was so stubborn and would not take it in part because he had this belief that the happy talk, that convincing the public um, that the virus wasn't as bad as, as they might think it is, and that it's going to go away and that everything's going to be magically better before long, that that was the path um, to boosting his popularity and winning re-election. And it just wasn't because it, at the end, the truth caught up with him and the American people just wanted a president who was going to level with them and, and tell it to him straight, especially when lives are at stake. And that's where he really failed. Um, and the, the trouble for him is so many of his advisors knew that would be the outcome had he not changed course and he wouldn't listen to them. That's really interesting. Um, you have a great quote uh, from Mick Mulvaney, who does have an association with the United States Study Center, He's, he, and he was chief of staff to uh, President Trump. And uh, you have this great quote of him saying, quote, everybody leaks here. You just have to put up with it. So tell us about the leaking. I mean, do people, do your phones just ring starting at 10, 1030 in the morning? You've come in, you had a coffee in Danish, and they just leak all over you. I mean, is that is that how it worked? What, tell us about it. <laughs> I, I actually think um, Phil has a, a better story on this because he and another colleague and friend of ours used to laugh about how it, it wasn't like they picked up the phone every day and there were people just giving them stories at four o'clock in the afternoon. They were sometimes a little worried about where the story was going to go because, you know, there weren't phones ringing like crazy. People weren't calling them back sometimes. But there was, I have to say, and, and we both experienced this in Washington, a, a feature of the Trump presidency in which warring tribes tried to outdo each other by planting things that were unflattering for, to their foes. Now, those unflattering pieces of information um, were accurate uh, and then sometimes had to be carefully vetted to make sure they were. Um, but they were doing it because they were trying to curry the favor of the king. And, and he, Donald Trump, encouraged this kind of, um, I don't know, play, your, play school bully stuff. He really did. He, he encouraged this behavior, which only egged it on more and increased it. Um, uh it, 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 on the warring, which you mentioned about the warring factions in the White House, Biden doesn't seem to have warring factions in his White House, at least not yet. 
We'll see, after this week, we'll see whether there are some warring factions in the White House. He has a lot of loyalty in the staff. I mean, is that true? Is it harder to find out what's going on in the Biden White House than it was in the Trump White House? It certainly is, um, I, I think, for a couple of reasons. One, um, the, the staff in the Biden administration are just far more disciplined. They're, they're political professionals. Um, it's not the same kind of cast of, of figures that you saw surrounding Trump. I mean, there are people who have been in Washington a long time and, and play by the rules. And, you know, there, there are pros and cons to that, but they're, they're just kind of your, your classic type A professional political operatives. And so they're very careful um, about what information they share with the public. Um, but they also all believe in Biden and in his agenda. And they're not there. Um, you know, there were people in the Trump White House who despised the president they were working for, but were doing the job either because they wanted uh, to take advantage of this opportunity for personal empowerment and gain and, and getting a big line on their resume or because they thought they were somehow you know, in there as a bulwark to try to save the country from the impetuous president. I mean, there were all sorts of convoluted reasons people worked for Trump, but the people working for Biden are mostly working for Biden because they believe in his agenda and they like Biden and they want him to succeed. And the way that they, one way that they think they help him and his presidency succeed is by keeping the drama out of the press. But that's not to say there's no drama going on um, in the Biden White House. There, there certainly uh, is drama. There are personalities. There are sharp elbows. There are egos. There are you know, disagreements about policy direction, I suspect, in the weeks to come. And I'm not it's not like I, I know this information and I'm just not sharing it. But my, my guess, my hunch as a reporter is that in the next few days and weeks, we're going to learn about some disagreements in the administration about what's going on in Afghanistan and about the, the extent to which, you know, the planning was, was up to snuff and ready to go for this withdrawal. And so that may reveal some fissures uh, within that close-knit Biden team. But uh, you're correct in that it's much more buttoned up and it's much more difficult for journalists to really understand you know, how the sausage gets made, what, what the decision-making process is like behind the scenes because so many of the principals and their staffers are so disciplined. Yeah. Uh, Phil, if there's another leak story, we'd love to hear it. Um, but also, I just want to ask you on the media, I mean, it's a whole different atmosphere. The press was the enemy of the people under Trump. And it's a completely different working relationship. We have a press secretary that takes the podium and she doesn't lie uh, every day and, um, and, and, and treats journalists with respect. Can, can you talk about that uh, a little bit too, about, I mean, Americans, I think um, many, you know, do uh, really dislike, hate the press, you know, feeding off of Trump's feelings towards them. But um, so A, how is it different? And how do you think it can be addressed so that more positive feelings consistent with a democracy or can be institutionalized to make us stronger uh, as we go forward with this presidency and future presidencies? Yeah, it's a good point. You know, the, the, the dynamic, the atmosphere is very different in that the President Biden and his team are not um, hostile to the press the way Trump was, but it's not like everybody's a friend and, <laughs> and getting along. I mean, there, there's a lot of animosity behind the scenes that you don't see in public where, you know, Biden staffers are calling our colleagues and our editors and, and other people at other news organizations to complain about the tone in stories, to complain about stories they think are too tough on Biden. Um, there's an assumption on the part of many Biden staffers that the press should be sort of on the team and rooting for Biden and, and writing favorable coverage. And that's, of course, 
Um, you know, there might be some left-leaning outlets that do that, but you know, most most of the mainstream media, including the Washington Post, that's not our job, right? We're objective journalists, and we we call balls and strikes, and um, you know, we're not we're not in there to to pick favorites or to to you know write puff stories about Biden just because his press secretary decides to do a briefing every day. But you're right that the atmosphere is very different, and it's it's a welcome change because this is the way a, a functioning democracy should work. It's the kind of professional uh, role of the free press and the way that the government, uh, which is of course serving the people and the public, should be responding to the free press and should be you know being held accountable and answering questions. That's all essential. Um, but there is hostility still behind the scenes, as, as you would expect in any relationship. Yeah. Um, I want to turn briefly to the First Lady, um, Melania Trump. Um, she makes only very short appearances in your books. And I'm wondering uh, what role she played, um, how consequential was she, how did Trump rely on her? I mean, no one knows what's inside her marriage, but nevertheless, uh, she was a force and, uh, and, they, and they were together throughout, uh, throughout the presidency. You know, she is um, a tough nut to crack for a lot of journalists. There are very few who have kind of figured out everything that the even even the big broad brush uh, take on Melanie uh, Melania. Forgive me. We've had a colleague who wrote a book about her, and and I think did one of the best jobs ever um, in in figuring out what motivated her, and also revealed that at the beginning of their marriage, uh, Melania Trump was essentially a negotiator of her. Uh, marriage agreement and using her physical location at the time that he was inaugurated president to negotiate a better deal, a better deal for her financially and a better deal, especially for her son, Barron. She remained in New York at great expense to the U.S. taxpayer. Um, tens of millions of dollars were spent so that she could remain there in a high rise tower in New York with her son for extra Secret Service protection. And um, it benefited her financially, presumably. As a, as a person in the president's life, she is someone who has some sway over him, who can uh, get through to him and, and tug on his ear. She successfully convinced him to do something that he regretted almost instantaneously, which was to ban uh, flavoring in e-cigarettes and vaping, because that... Right. Um, was something she was worried Barron, her son was was going to be attracted to, and she thought it was really dangerous, and uh, and persuaded him as as so did his health secretary that this was a, a great public health gesture because this flavoring was all to suck in children, just the way cartoons sucked in children to cigarettes at young ages, and he immediately regretted it, believed it would hurt him in the polls, and and excoriated his health and human services secretary, not Melania, for convincing him to do it. He said, you're gonna lose me the election, Alex. You're gonna, it, this is gonna cost me the whole ball of wax. Um, but actually that, that really didn't figure very prominently. Maybe the vapors stayed home. We don't know. We'll, I mean, we'll <laughs> as possible. <laughs> Carol, you had, you had another bestseller. I mean, just so everyone thinks that this is a, you know, la-di-da exercise here with two authors. You had another bestseller this year, Zero Fail, uh, Inside the Secret Service, fantastic book. Um, and uh, it's just amazing. And I, I really want you to tell us about Trump's relationship with the Secret Service. I mean, did they like him? Did they like him? Did they do a good job for him? Uh, did any of the uh, issues that have dogged uh, the Secret Service in recent years compromise their mission with Trump? And there was a big night where the secret, where he was rushed uh, apparently to 
uh, underneath it, the basement of the White House or lower mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. with, with the protests in Lafayette Square. But please tell us about the president of the Secret Service. Well, thank you for mentioning that book. It was the way that I got into being an author. But then the first Trump book that I did with Phil sort of trumped the Secret Service book. It was uh, more time sensitive and and ultimately more important. But the Secret Service history book that I did, Zero Fail, what I learned is that it was ended up being really good for that book to be delayed and to write a little bit about the relationship between the Secret Service and Donald Trump. Because just as he viewed every agency in his administration, he viewed the Secret Service the same way. And that was a tool at his disposal to help him get reelected. He used the Secret Service and he weakened it. Uh, it, it became... It was at a, a very fragile state when Obama left office, and it got worse with Trump in charge because he didn't really care about governing. He didn't care about bureaucracy, how to make an agency stronger, how to beef up its its resources while also clarifying its mission. And he politicized the agency in one painful way because there were a lot of detail agents on his detail, as happens with each presidency, who really sort of fell in love with the president, who really supported his law and order message, and who um, would do anything for him. But many in the Secret Service did not relish the two things that he did make them do. One, in the height of COVID, as it was spiking around the country, to go around into public locations, making sure his trip was safe while they were getting COVID, while they were contracting it and taking it home. And now because of public records requests by our organization and others, we now know that more than 900 Secret Service agents and officers contracted COVID or got a positive test that presumes that they did have it and led them to be quarantined. A huge, huge swath of people were put in harm's way. The second thing that President Trump used the Secret Service for was a, was a pretty authoritarian uh, photo op, uh, clearing forcibly uh, Lafayette Square on June 1 in the days after George, George Floyd's uh, murder by police. Forgive me, I wanna rephrase killing by police. And that death was so um, soul scalding for so many Americans. They came to Washington to protest this, to get redress, to get action. And Donald Trump's reaction was uh, fury that he couldn't make the rest of the world see that he was in control of Washington, D.C. And, and the Secret Service went along with his plan to clear that square so that he could hold a Bible up in front of a church. Uh, a very strange move, um, one that had sort of eerie consequences for his administration going forward. It did, and I wanna to get to that in just once, but your answer raises a question. How do you think many members of the service felt about January 6th? And whether they, did they see it as treason or did they feel that a, their president that they were protecting, some of whom liked him a lot, was not being fairly treated in the election. There were real doubts about the election. Any sense of that? Um, the sources that I talked to were, of course, appalled. It was, uh, you know, Trump supporters attacking law enforcement officers, um, leading to their death and leading to post-traumatic stress syndrome for, for hundreds of them. Uh, however, I must tell you with some disappointment that there were quite a few Secret Service agents, including people on the president's detail, 
who who cheered quietly the January 6th riot. Mm -hmm. uh, not the violence, but the effort to stop the certification, the effort to keep Donald Trump in power. Wow. Thank you for that very much. Um, but it, continuing on this, uh, and General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who I sort of feel is the hero or one of the heroes of the book, um, and going back to June 1 uh, and clearing Lafayette Square and General Milley marching in fatigues, uh, marching, walking in fatigues behind the president and the attorney general and Ivanka Trump and others on the staff. Um, your report uh, that he had an epiphany uh, after that day because, and he was determined based on the reaction to the military being seen as a partner of the president. The military being used to suppress um, a political demonstration clearly permitted by the First Amendment and in, the, in a democratic tradition of the country, that uh, Milley was determined after that, he reached a judgment that the military would not be used to interfere in the peaceful transfer of power. Um, please tell us more about Milley and his role in the events after the election. Yeah, so that um, the, the June 1st Lafayette Square moment was, was a, a real inflection point for General Milley who, by the way, is not a partisan uh, political figure. He's a career uh, military officer whom Trump had appointed in, uh, in 2018 to become chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, which in the US is the highest ranking military position uh, in the country. He swore to himself after that moment that he would never allow the military to be used as a political prop, to be used in a, in a political way. He knew the election was coming up. He knew Trump's proclivity to uh, to use all the, the, the tools of and the power at his disposal to help himself. And he knew Trump would try to use the military to help his campaign. And, and Milley vowed he wouldn't do that. As the election neared, he got increasingly on edge. And then after the election, when Trump was contesting the results with baseless claims of election fraud without any evidence to support by advancing these false conspiracies, Milley got really on edge and he started to see parallels between, and he confided this in, in, in friends of his and, and fellow military officers, he saw parallels between Trump's rhetoric about the election and the things Adolf Hitler was saying as he rose to power in Germany in the 1930s. And he became very fearful that Trump could actually, uh, would be so determined to stay in power that he could actually uh, try to uh, create a coup, use the military for a coup uh, to override the will of the people in the election and to stay in power for a second term. And, you know, Milley spoke to the concerned members of Congress about this. He spoke to a former defense secretary, Robert Gates, who is seen as like, kind of one of the, 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 the deans of statecraft um, in our country. He spoke to other, uh, other advisors who were also concerned about what Trump was doing. And he actually plotted with the other joint chiefs of the military, the heads of the army, the Navy, the Air Force, the different branches of the military to decide what they would do if President Trump as commander in chief issued an order that was unconstitutional or illegal or dangerous for the country. And they decided they would all resign, you know, one after one uh, in, in on mass in, in sort of a reverse Saturday night massacre event that would effectively delay the implementation of whatever order Trump issued. You know, it, it never really came to that, um, but there were, there were definitely plots underway um, to take over the CIA, to take over the FBI um, with Trump loyalists who would bend to the president's will. Uh, those plots were foiled. 
but Millie saw real uh, concern for a possible coup, especially in those final weeks. And then of course it all culminated on January 6th with the insurrection at the Capitol. Mm -hmm. And continued a bit uh, afterward, afterwards, the calls to the attorney, well, no, at that time, we're learning thanks to reporting in the Washington Post about calls to the acting attorney general and trying to possibly replace him with uh, someone who would uh, go to the state of Georgia and say, you have to really re-examine your election returns. And so really quite stunning. But a theme through this discussion is enablers and guardrails and so forth. And so I really want to ask you about, was the difference between having a, a peaceful transfer of power and not, was it because of Vice President Mike Pence, Bill Barr, the Attorney General, Mark Esper, the Acting Secretary of Defense, General Milley, and Mitch McConnell? Were they the difference between democracy and autocracy? Wow, that you put that very bluntly. And I, I, as I listened to your question, I was thinking, yeah, those are the people I would put on the list of folks <laughs> that, uh, that, that kept democracy on the rails. They, they all played a role in a, in a shocking way that Phil and I learned about to, to put their bodies in, in, in between a, a true coup or a takeover of uh, the guys with the guns, as, as General Milley called it. They all, they all played their role. But there was something else that kept democracy rolling along. And, and this is something that was sort of painful for some of our sources to talk about with us, but eventually they did. Donald Trump wasn't organized and efficient and disciplined enough. He was a, a minute by minute player, um, checkers versus chess, whatever metaphor you want to use. And what they saw was a real history lesson in this year because Donald Trump came close, right? The, the January 6th shows us just how close he could come to blocking a transfer of power with his own words. Hey, let's march up there. You, you better fight for your country or you won't have one. Uh, and yet his, his staccato way of trying to effort his will, execute his will, made it impossible for him really to get the guys with the guns. Right, fascinating. Um, let's talk about uh, interviewing Trump in person. Um, you saw him at Mar-a-Lago uh, as you were completing the book. Um, why do you think he wanted to talk to you? <laughs> I mean, he didn't, I don't believe you interviewed him for the first book. Is that, is that right? And he, and he talked with Woodward on his first book, but it's not talking with Woodward and Costa on their book that's about to come out. Um, okay, what's he like in person? And <laughs> tell us about the setting Mar-a-Lago. I mean, how decadent is it? Um, and then... Tell us, does he see himself as the power in the Republican Party right now? Does he want to run for president again? And do you think he will? Yeah, um, well, I'll start with the back part of that question. And <laughs> the answers, uh, as, as it appears today, I think are yes, yes, yes. Um, he, he's somebody who wants to run. He clearly has the fire in the belly. Um, he is talking to his advisors about running. I just heard from someone who had lunch with him a couple of days ago and came away from that meeting convinced 100% Trump is in for 2024. There's, you know, there's still time and he could obviously change his mind. He could get unhealthy in some way. The environment could change. But if he had to make a decision today, he would probably run. Um, who knows if he'd get elected? It, you know, we're far too early to tell. 
uh, but he'd obviously have an uphill challenge just given the fact that he lost <laughs> uh, the last time around. The interview at Mar-a-Lago, you know, Carol and I went down there at the very end of March. So we were, you know, nearing the completion of the reporting phase for this book. And we had already interviewed so many of the people around the president, the former president. But, you know, we were fair journalists and we wanted to, to meet the principal that we're writing about and, you know, not meet him for the first time, but, but meet him to talk about for this book um, and do the interview. And he gave us an hour and we showed up and he wanted to do the interview in the what they call the living room, which is basically like the lobby of Mar-a-Lago, which is of course a country club type place. So we're sitting there in the lobby with tons of people around and it was at five o'clock in the afternoon. So right before the dinner hour and you know, dozens of club members would stream through to go out to the patio for their tables for dinner and cocktails and would say, hello, Mr. President and, and suck up to him and shake his hand and wave at him. and it became very clear to Carol and me early on that Trump wanted us to be part of the performance, right? He was putting on a show. He wanted his members to see that these journalists had come down to hang on to his every word and, and listen to what he had to say. And, you know, he had a lot to say because the interview, we were given an hour and he talked to us for over two and a half hours. Um, he just kept talking and we of course kept asking questions, but it was really him wanting to keep it going and going and going. And, you know, so much of what he told us was not true, uh, just outright lies about the election. It became really, uh, it was kind of chilling for us as reporters to sit there and watch him speak with such conviction about things that, that the facts don't support that are just not true. But he's living in this kind of alternate dystopian reality in his own head um, about what happened in the November election. You know, he uh, at the end of the interview, he asked us if we wanted to stay and have dinner, which we we did. Um, it, it's basically a big buffet. So there were probably 100 or 150 club members who come and they come every night for the dinner buffet. And so they just got us in a couple extra plates and, and we took some food from the buffet table. But he came over to our table as we're eating to say, I just want to make sure, you know, you guys have what you need. And it was such an honor and a privilege to talk to you. I really enjoyed the conversation. And he revealed something at the end. He said, you know, it's a sickness, but I really liked it. So <laughs> to us, that seemed that he, he sort of, he, 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 he's like, he understands how strange this all is. Um, but it was a very decadent scene. Um, it was disturbing to hear all the lies, to be honest with you. Um, but it was also clear that he's kind of creating his own kind of brigadoon, his own um, exile down there. Uh, when he stepped out to the dinner patio, you know, the hundred of guests stood up and gave him a standing ovation. Uh, and he's, he can act down at Mar-a-Lago like he's still the president, even though he's not. But, you know, for the Republican Party, he remains king. There's no other figure in that party today um, who is remotely as popular or um, as beloved as Donald Trump. Uh, Carol, was it the most beautiful piece of chocolate cake you've ever had in your life? <laughs> you know, I think Phil did such a good job summarizing what it was like. Um, but I, I will say that the food was good. I told my mother, you know, the food's actually pretty good down there. Um, the biggest prawns you've ever seen. Some nice, wealthy <laughs> oysters, I believe. Um, salty, but good. And uh, just the right kind of salty. Um, and... I was really struck actually by how hard Donald Trump worked to charm us. You know, um, he's a charmer. And I know, and Phil knows, 
the, the true story of the presidency. We know uh, that what he was saying, um, Carol, I want Arizona. You know I want Arizona. Everyone knows I want Arizona. We know that's not true. And yet he says all of this with such incredible physical conviction. Right. Uh, no signs of deception. He, he could pass a polygraph, I think. Yes, I think he would. I always like to say if he was taken by the North Koreans and put in a room and uh, tied to a chair and North Koreans showed him all of his speeches, he'd say, I never said that. That's not me. I mean, I, I think he believes fully what he says, what he is saying at any, any time. Um, I want to conclude and we'll go to questions uh, with this question. Um, I want to talk more just about you both in your writing. Uh, the book reads seamlessly to me. I, I can't tell a Carol section from a Phil section. So I think it's, it's really quite integrated. So how does that happen? And then um, it also seems to me that once again, the Washington Post as an institution enables this type of journalism to flourish. I mean, just as it did five decades ago with Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. I mean, what makes the Post, which is now under a different owner, still the Post? You want to start, Phil? Oh, sure. Um, you know, we're lucky to work at the Post. The, uh, they've supported our work, you know, for the paper, but also our work for both of these books. And in Carol's case, for, for the third book, the Secret Service book. And, you know, there aren't a lot of other news organizations that would give um, some of their frontline reporters leaves of absence like that and, and be as supportive as they have been of us pursuing this work, but I think they do it because they see the value in the end. They see that this is journalism just in a different format and in, diff in a different medium. And, you know, the response, the, the critical reception we've received for, for both of these Trump books, but also the, the commercial response, just the number of people around the country who are, are committing their own precious dollars to reading this journalism, this reporting, because they want to know the truth. I mean, that's really meaningful and, and sends a powerful message, I think, to the Post. And frankly, the, the work we do in this book just builds on um, the work we and, and dozens of our colleagues have been doing for years uh, for the newspaper. It, it's all part of the same. It's, it's the same values, the same, uh, the same journalistic drive. And, um, and it's just really nice that we work for a paper that supports it um, and encourages it. Uh, from a lot of their reporters. So that's great. And and the writing of the book, um, that's really nice of you, Bruce, to, to say that it reads seamlessly. Um, you know, it, it's a it's an effort on both of our part, I think, to to make sure that even though we're a partnership with two, you know, very different people and different reporters with different, you know, writing styles and voices that when we're working together, um, you know, we try to make uh, make it all come together in a cohesive and coherent way. Quite wonderful, absolutely in the tradition of Woodward and Bernstein, and uh, you are today's joint reporters from the Post telling us what's going on. Uh, Simon, over to you for some questions from, we probably have a few questions, questions from the audience. I think you're on mute, Simon. Yep. I am on mute now. I'm not on mute, I hope. <laughs> Thank you. Um, um, look, and and I, I hastened through the introductions uh, today in the interest of giving us more time, but, but uh, it was great of Bruce to bring up in, um, Carol's um, Secret Service book, which I thought landed at a really important time as well. And, and of course, Carol um, uh, starting to run out of fingers to count the Pulitzers uh, <laughs> um, and just, just 
I didn't go through those sort of the 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 recounting of of career highlights, but they are plentiful uh, for both of you. Um, um, and and this book is um, will will take its place alongside those earlier accomplishments as well. And I thought it was very appropriate for Bruce to to mention sort of what a special place the post is. Um, it's a, it's a topic we touched on briefly uh, the first time we had Phil with us. Um, as I was talking about a very stable genius um, over a year ago now. Hey, look, so many of the questions that got logged with us when people registered for the event, I'm just going to summarize a bunch of them. And they, they, they fall under the heading of how is the Republican Party still in the thrall of Donald Trump? Uh, and moreover, you know, just building off that rather chilling last, say, five, 10 minutes of the conversation, how close we came. Uh, the election, Jan 6, despite COVID, um, to, to Trump, a quasi-coup, um, or perhaps a, a forget about it, a coup, um, in, in, you know, in the world's largest, most prosperous, you know, often considered to be, you know, the gold standard of, of democracy around the world. Here's a scenario. The Democrats lose the House in 2022. They, Republicans control the House at the time of the 24 election. Some of those breaks there at the end of the electoral process uh, that, that really, you know, the votes weren't there in the House um, to, 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 do a, to um, over, overturn the results from the states. You throw in what's happening right now out in state legislatures, making it harder for people to vote, um, number one, among other uh, things. You put all that together, Trump himself, what's happening institutionally and perhaps politically between now and 24, is it 2024 the election we ought to be really worried about in terms of sort of a, a threat to American democracy that 2020, precisely because it wasn't well organized, 2024 is perhaps going to be better organized and, and so the forces around Trump will have frankly more institutional assets on their side uh, come the time of that election. I'm, I'm, I'd be delighted to hear from either or both of you on, on that thought, which summarizes a lot of the questions we've got from, from people. You know, that it's a really great uh, arc of questions. The first one, why is, why is the Republican Party still in the thrall of Donald Trump? It's their own darn fault. Um, you know, Republican lawmakers saw this horse coming into town that wasn't very attractive and yet were to them and to their mainstream GOP view. And yet here he was grabbing up voters because he is the master of the megaphone. He is tapped brilliantly. This is his genius into people who are disaffected, feeling disenfranchised, feeling that the country's getting too diverse, makes them uncomfortable, feels the economic winds are blowing the wrong way for them. He has stoked and, and, um, and worsened their angers and their fears. He's tapped them and then ratcheted them up. And Republicans who saw that happening decided to grab some of his voters and give them whatever gruel Donald Trump was serving them true or not, uh, again, for their own, for their own job preservation. And unfortunately, that's, that circle continues now, because uh, I, I'm just thinking about a Republican operative who was nearly not in tears, but extremely emotional after January 6th. And he said, you know, if, if Republican lawmakers had just really broken with Trump then on the big lie, 
had broken with him then on the issue of January 6th being a bridge too far, a violent attack on our democracy, then we wouldn't have to continue. He, he would be, um, his, his false and hardened narrative that Phil and I got a preview of at Mar-a-Lago would be joked out of town. You know, it would, it would be dis- discarded. But Republicans are too excited about winning the House in 2022 and too excited about the chances for 2024. And now they can't break that circle. They can't break that loop of, of lies. Bill, wondering if you had a, anything to add to that about perhaps what might lie ahead with, with 24? Um, I think you're, you're both absolutely right about 2024. And that could be the big test because there's organization underway and because there's time, which Trump didn't really have and his forces didn't really have. But it's one of the reasons why Democrats, at least some Democrats, are speaking with such urgency about passing a voting rights bill and trying to find ways to block the uh, efforts in states like Texas and Georgia to restrict voting um, access, which is very successfully being muscled through by Republican state legislatures and by Republican governors. And you know, each of these individual um, cases or episodes or examples does not portend the end of democracy necessarily. But when you look at it, that the whole landscape of it and everything that's underway, both in terms of the state election laws, but also in terms of, you know, Trump wanting to run again and the, the continuation of the so-called big lie, the lie about the, the election fraud in 2020, um, then you really do see a threat to democracy. And that could be a very real um, concern. And we could be looking down the road at a presidential election in which people are not able to cast ballots or in which ballots will not be counted necessarily because of some of these uh, laws that are passing in these states. And, and that could be very troubling um, for the future of our republic. Um, I'm wondering, both of you too, we've got a number of questions and I'm, I'm just aggregating as best I can. A lot of people on the call, a lot of questions. So sort of another theme that's coming through in the questions centers on the role of, of disinformation um, yeah. in, in the American media landscape, the role of social media. I mean, we've talked about sort of the, what a privilege it is for both of you, if you don't mind my saying, working at an institution like the Post. And, um, but, you know, and while we read the Post, uh, not a lot of, um, you know, not enough um, other Americans uh, uh, do. Um, I'm wondering, have you got a, a sense of how that enabled Trump, the role it continues to play, um, any the, the the success or otherwise a pushback perhaps from social media companies, just the the lay of the landscape now that we're you know what are we seven months, uh, eight months past um, the events of Jan six and and the end of the Trump presidency, I'd really appreciate your assessment of of both the the arc there. Um, I'm and, sorry. And- Carol, sure. Thank you. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I actually missed a word because my my laptop like fizzed for a second. I didn't hear what you said. Oh, pardon fully. me. I was just asking the role of disinformation, ah. both as an enabler of Trump, but its continuing role in American politics yeah. and, and indeed from your perspective as you know, MSM journalists um, to, to look at that and, and the extent to which is, is, is mainstream media or social media doing a better job of pushing back against um, disinformation? 
I don't know what's, I mean, we talk a lot about what, especially in our pages about Twitter and Facebook and taking Trump off of those platforms, but I don't know how you change the new echo chambers. They've been developing since, you know, the nineties, but now they're, they're totally ironclad silos. I don't know how you change something like Fox news on, um, all day long in someone's home, many people that I go to interview, it's on all day long, turned on in the background, and it it carries uh, information that I know is ostensibly and demonstrably false. You, It's hard to imagine how we're going to shake something like this when Tucker Carlson remains such a prominent feature of that network after fabricating um, and exaggerating to a, a really gross degree the violence that he claimed was happening in American cities when people were protesting the death of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter protesters were protesting systemic racism in our country and in our police forces. I mean, Tucker Carlson had photo images on his show that were compilations fabricated indicating that, that a, a town was on fire and Black people had weapons in the middle of that fire, and it was found to be completely fabricated. And that would that would lose me my job. That would lose anyone at the Washington Post their job. But he remains, um, you know, a signature of that of that group with that without any consequences for that act. Uh, so I don't know what will happen. Uh, it's pretty depressing because you don't have to have Russian disinformation anymore in our country. It, you don't need it. Right. Bill, anything to add to that? I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, I would just point out that it, it it's going to take a lot of time, I think, and perhaps even a, a generational change for uh, trust to be restored to the media, if ever, in part because, you know, we can do everything right, you know, over the course of a year. And, and when the leader, the person that... Um, you know, a significant fraction of the country is following is saying it's all not true and not to be believed and these are despicable people and they're scum of the earth and they're enemies of the state. How do you how do you combat that? You 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 can't really. You can continue acting professionally and telling the truth, but there's not much we can do if if people are disinclined to believe that it's true uh, to begin with. And so it, it's gonna take a, a sea change, I think, in the way um, political leaders and public officials uh, engage with the media and talk about the media in order to restore trust. And, and for that to happen, it's going to require, you know, political will to do so. And right now, um, you know, Trump and, and many of his Republican allies think that they have political uh, benefits to, to creating distrust in the media. So that's only going to continue. Right. right. Um, Bruce, back to you for, um, for a final word. Just to say, just to say a heartfelt thanks. It's just a privilege to be with you, to listen to you. Uh, we'll end this day wiser than when we started it. And uh, we look forward to your reporting. And uh, maybe, I don't wanna loop you in now, but maybe next year we can have another conversation on the state of America heading into the midterm elections. But maybe that'll be in person instead of just by Zoom. But anyway, Phil, Carol, thank you so much. Thanks for all you do. Thanks for your commitment. It's a real honor. Thank you thanks, for having Bruce. us. Thanks, Bruce, and, and, and thanks, Carol. And um, we'll, um, we'll bring the event to an end right on the, on the top of the hour. Uh, and again, it's evening there in Washington, D.C. 
uh, East Coast of the United States where, where Phil and, and Carol are. Um, it's such a privilege um, to get an hour of your time um, for, for, for us here in Australia. This insight, you know, this going straight into the proximity um, you have to these momentous things that are of immense concern and interest to, um, to us here at the US Study Center, but the, the hundreds who, who of interested Australians um, who, who joined um, our call today. So, so thank you for helping us fulfill our mission here uh, in Australia with your time tonight. Thank you.